Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Each week we gather to make connections and break through the illusion of separation. I hope something you hear today in this next hour opens you to the infinite field of possibility. So, what would your life be like if you learned that you are more powerful than you have ever imagined or ever been taught? Can you forever change how you think about your thinking? Stunning new scientific discoveries about the biochemical effects of the brain's functioning show that all the cells in our body are affected by our thoughts. The new science of epigenetics is revolutionizing our understanding of the link between mind and matter. Can a new way of looking at science and spirituality change the way we think about our lives, our health, and our planet? Our guest today is going to show us how leading-edge science has unraveled in ever greater detail how truly connected the mind, body, and spirit are. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I introduce our guest. Bruce Lipton cell biologist and lecturer, is an internationally recognized leader in bridging science and spirit. Bruce was on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and later performed groundbreaking stem cell research at Stanford University. He is the best-selling author of The Biology of Belief, The Honeymoon Effect, and Spontaneous Evolution. Bruce received the 2009 prestigious Goy Peace Award in honor of his scientific contributions to the world. I am so happy to have Bruce with us. Welcome, Bruce. I am so happy to be here with you and and also so happy to be here with your wonderful audience uh, because I know your show is really appealing to those people looking for evolution and um, there's just a wonderful community of cultural creatives listening and I'm having a, a, just a delight to have that opportunity to talk with them. Mm, thank you. Well, we do have a, a beautiful conscious community here. And I tell you what, the social media lines are lit up today. People are talking about the interview already. They're wanting to ask some questions. I even jotted some down from our community and our listeners. So we'll see if we can get to those. But first, Bruce, we like to set this tone for our show into the greater perspective and this this important meme. So I want to start off by saying, Bruce Lipton, what does all things connected mean to you? It means that um, our understanding of the universe as we look out our eyes, that we see pieces and parts and they all are individual items and they, they appear to be disconnected. Uh, and that's a Newtonian vision of the world because the Newtonian physics looks at the world as a physical mechanical machine. But we also recognize there's a realm that's an invisible realm. And this invisible realm actually is what creates the, what we see as the physical realm. So a new science came in after Newtonian physics, which said, simple, Newtonian physics said, yes, there's an invisible realm and a, and a physical realm, but to understand the universe and how things work, you don't have to 
understand the invisible realm, so you just focus on the physical plane. So, for example, in health and biology and all that, we, we talk about the physical characteristics of biology, but we don't really talk about consciousness and spirit and mind because they don't represent physical things, so they're not relevant in conventional medicine. And it turns out quantum physics came in in 18, uh, well, actually in 1925 when it fully was introduced as the formal science. And quantum physics changes the entire view of the world because um, instead of seeing um, the world as two different things, a physical and an energy world, quantum physics, which is a bigger science than Newtonian physics is by a landslide, uh, quantum physics says everything is energy, everything is one. Uh, and, and how they got that is when they started taking part the physical world, the atom, and they broke it down. They, oh, they got electrons and protons and neutrons, and then they break that down. They got quarks, and they say, okay, what's making the quarks? And that's when it got really strange, because at that point it became uh, um, understandable that there was nothing physical at the bottom. It was an energy. It was all energy. And, and so our... our expression of what we see physical is just a very unique form of energy. There's no physicality to us. Uh, and then you say, so what? And then the bottom line is this. Well, if matter is made out of energy and the invisible stuff is made out of energy and energy has no borders, I mean, if you're sitting in a room anywhere right now, think about this radio and television broadcast waves, cell phone waves are coming through, uh, solar energy is passing through your building and all that. And I go, you can't separate them. They're all intermixed. There's no way you can unentangle them. And I say, yeah, now, add to that everything that you saw that was physical, because it also represents energy, and then you realize everything is one. There's nothing that's uh, not connected to something else in our entire universe. Everything is connected to everything, and that brings in a picture of what we would like to refer to as holism. You want to understand life? As medicine, we focus on the human body. Oh, it's not working right. Oh, there's something broken in the body, and we look for the genes and all that kind of stuff, and... And now we find out that it's actually you know, less than 1% of disease is based on genes. 90% of disease or more is based on how you respond to the environment. <laughs> and that means how you are connecting with this holism. So it takes us uh, from focusing on our biology as little individual parts and pieces and says, no, your biology is connected by energy to everything in the universe, everybody else, all the other objects, you know, and we say, oh, that's new quantum physics. And I go, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the Asians have understood feng shui for thousands of years. And I say, what is it? And they say, every physical object has energy to it. And therefore, by, you know, putting objects in certain positions, you are creating an energy sphere, which is the, you know, the feng shui creating of an, an energy environment. And so, uh, while Western science is, uh, you know, is defining it in the terms of quantum physics, the knowledge that everything was interconnected by energy was well known by Asians thousands of years ago. Mm. Yeah, you know, this whole conversation, it's beautiful because this is one of the things that you have done and you've gifted the world with some incredible research and your voice and your writings and your speaking. And you have just released the 10th anniversary edition of the Biology of Belief and you brought in this topic and... So as, as we're talking about that on the program today, maybe you can explain to our listeners in an easy way, just like you did, about epigenetics. What is this? And this whole new idea that our genes don't create our health and illness, what, is that, what does that all mean? Well, it's the most exciting revolution in civilization that will sense uh, 
I don't know, maybe Newtonian physics was a long time ago. And, and the reason for this is, let me just take you back to where I was. I was teaching at a medical school, teaching medical students the conventional belief at that time, 1970s. Uh, it was called genetic determinism. And it's the belief that genes uh, control the characteristics of our life. And it wasn't just the physical. It turned out to be also the behavioral and emotional characteristics were then attributed to genes. And I said, well, what was the meaning of this education? I said, well, we're teaching people that their life is controlled by genes. I said, well, why is that relevant? I said, because as far as we know, we didn't pick the genes. We can't change them if we don't like the genes that we have. And then you realize, well, wait a minute, my life is controlled by genes, and I have no control over the genes. And I go, yes. And then I say, well, what is the outcome of that understanding? And it's like, I am a victim of my heredity that uh, characteristics in my life are going to unfold, not because I want them to unfold, it's because I inherited the genes, and they're going to make it unfold, so I'm a victim. And, and I said, and the consequence of being, uh, you know, uh, under, perceived as a victim is then no responsibility. Why? Well, how can I be responsible? I'm not in control of it anyway, so therefore I'm not responsible for my health. The genes are doing it, so, then, you know, so now there's no responsibility. There's victim and no responsibility, powerless, because I can't control it. And then the need, and this is the, the catch that always gets me, the need to buy a rescuer. Because you know you can't control this, but somebody can. And who are you going to pay? And, and then we have the pharmaceutical industry come in and say, yes, pay us and we will take care of you. Uh, and so, normal story. Everybody out there is, is still in the conventional world in belief of that story, that genes are controlling their fate and they have no power in their victims. And epigenetics, well, I was teaching that in, in, in the, the, the regular part, that genetics in the regular students in the medical school. I was carrying out research on stem cells, and stem cells are embryonic cells, they're multipotential cells. And what, what I was doing was simply this, is I was um, taking a single stem cell, put it in a Petri dish by itself, so it's like an embryonic cell, uh, and it divides every 10 hours. So after a week, I have about 50,000 cells because it keeps doubling every 10 hours. And I get about 50,000 cells. Uh, but the most important point is they're all genetically the same. And this is going to be a major jump here, Julie. So this is, okay, no, here go we go. For it. Yeah, sounds I have great. 50,000 genetically identical cells. I split them into three Petri dishes and I change the environment. And a little sidebar here, environment. It's called culture medium. I say, well, what is culture medium? I say, well, Go look where I get the cells from. If, like, I get cells from inside your body, when you open it up, there's all fluids in there and blood and all kinds of things. I say, oh, cells are, uh, are, are like fish, and that inside your body is this aquarium of fluid. So cells grow in a fluid. I can't grow them on a dry Petri dish. I say, well, what about the fluid? I say, well, to make the fluid that cells grow in, I go to the organism from where I get the cells. So if I, go, if I, if I get mouse cells, then I go to a mouse and I take its blood, and I look at the chemical composition and try to recreate that so that my mouse cells are growing in the equivalent of synthetic mouse blood, culture medium. Or if I get human cells and I look at composition of human blood and create culture medium on that. And then, uh, so basically the environment of the cells is the equivalent of the blood. That's the analogy, okay? Here's where the experiment now, back up, sidebar over, back to the experiment. Three petri dishes, genetically identical cells in each dish. But I changed the chemical composition of the growth medium a little bit in each dish. And lo and behold, in one dish, the cells form muscle in one environment with one chemical uh, composition. In a second environment with a slightly different chemical composition, the cells form bone. 
And a third environment with yet a different uh, chemical composition, the cells form fat cells. So in one dish uh, muscle, one dish bone, and one dish fat are the results. I said, well, what controlled the fate of the cells? What, what caused them to become muscle, bone, or fat? Uh, and the first thing is this, they were all genetically identical. So you can't say, oh, this one had genes for muscle, and this one had genes for bone. No, they all had the same genes, exactly the same. The only thing that was different was the environment, the culture medium. And I go, wow, <laughs> uh, okay, genes are not controlling the fate of the cell. The chemical composition of the environment is controlling the fate of the cell. And if you change the chemicals, you change the fate of the cells. It's like, well, wait, so the genes didn't do this. And the answer is no. There's the whole belief that genes turn on and off. Let me just tell you right now, that is completely false. I'll give you a simple reason why. A gene is no different in function than a blueprint is. A gene is a pattern to make a protein, which is the building block of the body. I say relevance. Well, if an architect's working uh, on her, her blueprint and you lean over her shoulder and you say, excuse me, is your blueprint on or off? And she turns and says, well, are you crazy? It's a blueprint. It's not on. There's no on and off. Mm. So, precisely. Genes have no action. And yet we, for years, everybody says, oh, a gene caused cancer and a gene did this and a gene turned on or off. And it's like completely false. I said, well, how did the genes work? Well, that's, I go back to my experiment. I said, well, what activated the genes? I say the signals from the environment. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, the control was not in the genes. It was in the environment. I go, absolutely. And, and therefore, if I take a Petri dish of cells from a healthy environment and then move it to a not healthy, an unhealthy environment, the cells get sick. And then you might say, oh, if, if there was a cell doctor, he would probably prescribe some medication for these sick cells. And I go, absolutely not. What I would do is just take the dish from the bad environment move it back to the good environment, and the cells will instantaneously get healthy again. What's the point? The mm. conditions of the environment determine the conditions of the cells. Uh, and so it's like, oh, wow. And then I go, now let's just move that up to humans for one second because that's cells in a plastic Petri dish with synthetic uh, culture media. And I go, wait, when you look in the mirror and see yourself and you see a single entity, that's an illusion because the truth is you're made out of about 70 trillion cells the individual cells are the living entity. You, by actual definition, you are a community of 50 trillion cells. Uh, you, they're so small you can't see them as individuals, but if you could you know, use a microscope and look at yourself, you say, oh my God, I'm made out of all these living cells. I go, yeah, so Julie or Bruce or whoever is a, a name representative of a community. So uh, the funny part is then a human body is the equivalent of a skin-covered Petri dish inside of which are about 50 trillion cells. And I say, and they have culture medium. And yeah, I call it blood. I go, oh. I say, and if you change the composition of the blood, you change the fate of the cells. I go, absolutely. Because it doesn't make a difference if the cell's in a plastic dish or a skin dish. It's still the environmental fluid that's going to control the fate of the cells. And then now we're, we're taking this big jump here. I love it because then we'll finish the, the background. And it goes like this. Okay, so... Inside my skin-covered Petri dish, I have 50 trillion cells. The culture medium is blood. The chemistry of the culture medium will determine the genetics and fate of the cells. I go, yes. And I say, well, then what determines the chemistry of the blood? I go, well, the brain. The brain is the chemist that releases all the neurohormones and regulatory factors and all these other things into the blood and controlling the composition. I go, oh, okay, so the brain is the biochemist who is making the culture medium 
which contains the elements that control the behavior and the genetics? I go, yeah. And then last thing, so what chemicals should the brain release? And I go, oh, this is cool. I go, whatever the picture the mind has, the brain will translate that picture into chemistry. And therefore, if you have a picture of love, for example, in your mind, the brain releases uh, um, dopamine for pleasure, releases vasopressin, which makes you more attractive to your partner. It releases oxytocin, which is bonding uh, energy for you and your source of pleasure, and it releases growth hormone, uh, which makes you healthy. And that's why you know people in love look so vital and glow, uh, because the chemistry of the brain interpreting love is those chemicals. I say, if I add those to a plastic petri dish, the cells grow beautifully. Then I say, wait, same body, same brain, same cells, but different mindset. This time, instead of a picture of love, there's a picture of fear. I go, oh, well, wait, the brain does not release any of the chemistry of love when there's a picture of fear. When the brain sees a picture of fear, it releases stress hormones and inflammatory agents that uh, influence the system and get it ready for fight or flight and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it has a dramatically different function on the genetic activity and behavior of yourself because you've just changed the culture medium. So all of a sudden I said, oh my God, what did Lipton just describe? He described how the mind, where the picture comes from, is translated by the brain into chemistry, which is then sent via the blood to the cells and there regulates the genetics and the behavior, which involves epigenetics. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, that's called the mind-body connection, and there's no blank spot in there or magic or miracle. It's the direct influence of a picture. Your world that you are creating is a manifestation of the picture you hold in your mind about life, and your biology is becoming a complement to match that picture. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there you are. And I say, and if you change your mind, then you change your life. And that's how it works. Mm. Bruce, this is so important. And you know that I, I love that you talk about the multipotential cells that you're doing research on. And now we're into the multipotential cells as humans, as whole cells, as humans in this larger body of consciousness. But the thing that I think is really important to, to differentiate here is that. Yes, our mind is really creating this picture of love, picture of fear. This is a really simple terms of it. But a lot of people will start getting anxious in that I can't control my mind 24-7 and, you know, every minute of the day, how do I have positive thoughts? And really, yeah. you talk a lot about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind and, and how we can reprogram. Uh, there you go. That's the key to creating life. Uh, you know, there's a, a simple understanding that uh, is real and makes sense out of everything that's going on right here is the story called The Matrix, the movie The Matrix. And, and, and the relevance of that is it's a story that says we've all been programmed. Well, I'm telling you the fact that that's not fiction. That's, that's actually a documentary. We all have been programmed the first seven years of our life is a programmable period where we learn behavior and how to respond and become a member of a family and a community and enact the, the, the behavior that holds those things together. Where did you learn those behaviors? By observing other people. And they down, we download our parents' behavior, our siblings, and others as our behaviors. How, do I, how am I going to respond? The same way my dad did or the same way my mom did. 
because I learned from them. And that learning occurred in the first seven years, and our brain was functioning in a state of hypnosis, and theta was the predominant brain state in EEG terms. Theta is imagination. You know, that's why kids between two and seven especially mix the real world and the imaginary world because their brain is operating at theta. Uh, but theta is also hypnosis. And it's this period where we learn the fundamentals of how to be a member of a family and a community. The thousands of, uh, of different nuances. I mean, how you talk to a child as an adult is different than how an adult talks to another adult or how an adult talks to their partner or how an adult talks to a policeman. <laughs> every one of these different instances is a different way of communicating. Everyone is learned by a child by seven. As a matter of fact, the... The Jesuits would boast about this knowledge. They would say, give me a child until it's six or seven, and it will belong to the church for the rest of its life. They already know if you get the first seven years of programming, you design the outcome of that person's life. So the issue is we've all been programmed. The unfortunate part about the programming, as psychologists will tell us, is that 70% or more of it is disempowering, self-sabotaging, and limiting all the things that we can't do, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and, and this is you're worth this, and you're not lovable, all these kind of things we heard as children are, are really uh, shaping our lives during this time period. And we um, have the mind that this, all these programs are in, it's called the subconscious mind, because it's just a recording device. It's not an evil thing. People say it's evil. I go, no, it's a, a CD recorder is, is not evil. <laughs> the program it records might really be bad, but the player is not bad. The player is great. Uh, the subconscious mind is great. It's the habit mind. You learn how to walk. You don't have to do this learning every day. You, you, know, you learn how to drive a car. You don't have to relearn all the time. Uh, so habits are really good when they're good habits, but if you program a bad habit in there, well, then it's, it's not going to support you when it plays. So the issue is this, we have the habit mind, subconscious, and then by age seven, we activate the newest evolutionary part of our brain called the conscious mind, and that's the part where we as individuals, spirit, soul, uh, uh, where we reside, that's where our source is in the sense that we're in that conscious mind, we as entities. And, and what's unique about the conscious mind is compared to the subconscious, which is habit, this is the neat part that makes humans so different, uh, is that the conscious mind is very creative. And uh, it also is not time-bound, because I can say, well, what are you doing next week? And it's like, well, if you can plan what you're doing next week, you're, you're creating something that doesn't exist already. So uh, it's very creative, and it's not time-bound. Subconscious mind is always in the current moment. Uh, if you ask your subconscious, when did I learn how to walk? Uh, it would respond, today because it doesn't know time, it just knows programs. So uh, there's no time element to it. So now here's the issue. Subconscious mind, habits, primarily programmed by other people for seven years of our lives. So the behaviors of how to comport our behavior, how to handle our lives, was really determined by the behaviors we downloaded from observing our mother, father, siblings community. The conscious mind engages around seven. It's a creative mind uses the database in the subconscious to get off the ground. But here's the part. Since the subconscious mind is not time-bound, it can think into the past and go into the future, then it means that it's not always present. <laughs> and if you go into thought, it means you also go into your head. You're not being present. And, and so here's the, the interesting part. The conscious mind is, yes, totally creative and is the boom that makes us who and what we are. But the conscious mind can think. 
And when it thinks, by definition, it's not paying attention to what's going on in the outer world. Just because you're having a thought doesn't mean whatever you're doing, you stop. In other words, you're walking down the street and you have a thought doesn't mean, oh, conscious mind is not paying attention. We stop here until the thoughts finish and then the conscious mind will continue walking. It's like, no. If you're having a thought, the brain default is to turn the behavior over to the subconscious. Well, you learned how to walk. That's already in your subconscious. So you can let go of walking and thinking about walking and have a thought and the system will carry on the walking. So basically it says this, and this is, this is a little, you know, put a box around this thing here. This is very critical at this point. It says, when you're keeping your conscious mind in the present moment, the creative conscious mind is in charge of manifesting your life and controlling your cognitive behavior and all that. Okay? But the moment you start thinking, the default kicks in, and all behavior now is controlled by the subconscious because the conscious mind is not, it's like on autopilot because the subconscious mind's looking in the head for something <laughs> at some point. And I go, okay, great. So that means when you're thinking, then you're playing the subconscious programs. I go, yes. And now, now I put this all together and say, so science has revealed that 95% of our life is coming from the subconscious programs because uh, we're only conscious, mindful about 5% of the day. That means the conscious mind, and here's the, the crux of it, conscious creative mind has your wishes and desires and what you want. Then I say, oh, that operates 5% of the day. And you say, why only 5%? Because it's now been recognized that our brain is in thought about 95% of the day. Mm -hmm. I go, well, if the brain is thinking 95% of the day, then it says 95% of the time, the behavior that we're playing is not from our conscious creative mind, a source of who we are, a personal identity, is coming from a downloaded database that we got other people's behavior. Yeah, and realize yeah. Something. Wow, you know, our conscious creatives... What's are, that? Excuse me, Bruce, sorry to interrupt you. Our, our no, conscious go. listeners are probably firing off on lots of, of ideas of, of how to reprogram here. So we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig deeper into this and look at how you can reprogram and be the healthiest, best you you can be. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. My name is Dale Pazinski. I'm 19 years old, and this is how I live United. I've always been kind of a computer geek, and I found a way to use those skills to help the homeless in my community. For people facing hard times, computer skills and a basic resume are so important. It may seem like a small thing, but it makes a huge difference in people's lives. So with United Way, I created a program where I work with the homeless. Together, we go through their whole job history, write a resume, and then save it on their very own USB drive. We provide workbooks and training certificates. I even budgeted for cupcakes so we can celebrate as a class when one of our people gets a job. That's huge. When somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. That's what living United feels like to me. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. 
There's a place where a total stranger will give their blood to save your life. There's a place where someone you never knew will save your child from drowning. A place where people will give you food and shelter after a flood. There's a place where, when you need it most, someone will reach out their hand, put it across your shoulder and say, everything's going to be okay. That place is called America, where we look out for each other. And it's up to us to keep it that way. When you help the American Red Cross, you help America. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org today. Hey, parents, finding it hard to communicate with kids in today's world of ever-changing slang? Hi, son. Excuse me? Introducing the Communicizer. Just strap non-toxic Communicizer to your mouth and go from boring old man speak. Oh, you know, I'm here if you want to talk. To 100% off the chain. Text me whenever, yo. It's that easy. Thanks to Communicizer, I'm relevant to my kids again. I mean... A fly, boo. And now when you buy Communicizer, you get the auto-tune attachment free. Sounds so hip-hop, your kids will want to talk to you for hours. I used to have to walk three miles uphill to school every morning, short day. I love you, Dad. I love you too, son. Communicizer is not available in stores because it doesn't exist. But that's okay. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Because kids in foster care don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to adoptuskids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Adopt Us Kids and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome, Black. We are talking with Bruce Lipton. If you're inspired by our conversation today and want to share it with others, or maybe just listen to it again, please visit our website at TheDrJulieShow.com, where you'll find the archive for this show and all of the upcoming guests as well. And stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. And you want to find out more about Bruce? Check out his website. That is BruceLipton.com, just like it sounds, BruceLipton.com. Bruce, before the break, we were talking about creating this state of non thinking, um, which I know in a lot of people's minds, we're, we're looking at energy medicine, we're looking at meditation, we're looking at creative pursuits, the arts, all of these things that maybe take us out of thinking mode. And your book is called The Biology of Belief. So maybe we can go just a little bit deeper into really how do we learn to manage and reprogram a, a, a real thinking we in our Western culture we're in our heads a lot and then what does the role of belief have to do with the thinking mind (laughs) well let's answer the last one very quickly with a a picture of like wow and it goes like this if i hypnotize you and say i'm going to touch you with a burning cigarette and i just touch you with the tip of my finger most people within a minute or two will start to create a blister and go through the whole burn effect. And it's like, well, what, how did that happen? Obviously, my finger wasn't burning you. I go, the mind perceived that it did. 
And the mind, uh, even the local cells where the site where I touch, the local cells, hey, nothing happened here. And yet the mind sends signals to the, uh, through the brain to that particular part of the body and says, I saw you got burned, so uh, activate the entire burn response. So you get the whole blister and all that kind of stuff like that. And it's like, well, wait a minute. There was no reason for it. Yeah, but your belief made it. And that is an example of how specific uh, a belief is. I mean, you didn't just get blisters everywhere. You got it exactly where you touched it because the belief was that that was the spot where I got burned. And I manifest a burn response without any burn at all. And I say, this applies to anything in your whole life. You know, cancer. I'm believing about a cancer. I can manifest a cancer. These things happen like that. Matter of fact, less than 10% of cancer is even based on heredity. It's the vast majority of cancer is lifestyle and belief. So um, how important is belief? And I said, well, it manifests our, what we perceive as life. Uh, if you believe the world's against you, you will find trouble every day when you get out in the world because yes. uh, your belief will assure that your behavior will you know, create what you expect. Uh, there's a phrase that I use in my lectures, Julian. It's a short phrase, but it's so profoundly important. So let me say it, and then I'll pause for a second, which is hard for me, but... <laughs> the function of the mind, and this is it, the function of the mind is to create coherence between our beliefs and our reality. The function of the mind is to take our beliefs and manifest the expression of them as our reality. Mm-hmm. So how important is our belief? Well, it's shaping everything in your life, basically. So that's important. Now, the issue about the belief, now that's the story that is critical because what we talked about was since we use our conscious mind so much, 95% of the time, uh, then by definition, our biology and our behavior and everything we're doing when we're not paying attention is, is running through the default programs of the subconscious, which then by definition primarily represent behaviors derived from other people, so they're not uh, our way of running life. That's just the way we learned how to do it from somebody else. And then you say, okay, well, we can get out of it by being totally mindful. And I say, yeah. And I say, but boy, that's a difficult thing in this world because we're so pressured into thinking and responding and behaving that, uh, you know, it'd be like, oh, yeah, please, just don't, just, you know, don't think, (laughs) stay mindful. It's like uh, easy to say, but not really practical in the world we're doing. So, um, but what if you did stay mindful? And I love that because the answer to that is the, uh, uh, the third book that I put out is called The Honeymoon Effect. <laughs> and it basically says, um, uh, we talked about the fact that we've been programmed. It's sort of like the Matrix. And, and in the movie The Matrix, they, they say if you take the red pill, you get out of the program. And they never really say, well, what happened to life when you got out of that program? And I go, well, in our lives, we have been programmed. So that Matrix part is true. And I said, but... Many of us have also had the red pill at a time, and our lives changed on a dime. And you say, well, when was that? I say, the first time you fell head over heels in love, big time love with somebody, uh, your life changed. I say, no matter what was going on in your life up to that moment, things weren't working out, life is a struggle, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you meet this person the next day. It's like, oh, my God, it's heaven on earth. You know, it's like, oh, this is the most wonderful experience of being in love. And everything is brighter and prettier. And all those problems disappear. And life is great. And I call that, that's the honeymoon period. And I say, how did that happen? That everything was a struggle. And then 24 hours later, it's heaven on earth. And the answer science has now recognized is 
we became mindful without ourselves knowing it. <laughs> when mm. you fell in love like that, uh, everything you were dreaming about in a relationship is now in front of your face. And so the, the mind all of a sudden goes, the conscious mind's like, well, I'm, I'm not going into thought. I, everything here is really cool. <laughs> and it stays mindful. And the more it stays mindful, the more that heaven on earth experience is manifesting because the more you're staying mindful, the, 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 the actual the conscious mind, the prefrontal cortex, is now the primary source controlling your behavior. And I go, yep, but that source is the one that has wishes and desires. So when two people come together, become mindful without them even knowing that's what's happening, then in that next period of time, they're living their lives not through their subconscious programs, but through their conscious minds, wishes and desires, manifesting wishes and desires. <laughs> That's called the honeymoon. And then I say, and then unfortunately for most, it disappears after some period of time, some very quickly, some a little longer, because life gets busy and it starts to encroach on you. You start thinking more about the job, uh, the chores, paying the rent, whatever. And the more you start thinking, the more you start defaulting back to the subconscious, and then life returns back to the struggle it was before. And so uh, I say that we did take the red pill. We did become mindful. And I said, what happened when we became mindful? And the answer was this. You created heaven on earth. <laughs> well, that's really good. As soon as you got out of the program, you stopped playing the program, and 24 hours later, heaven on earth. And it's like, yeah, it was always there, except that, since 95% of our life was coming from the program, the heaven on earth is not part of the program. You were manifesting the program. And, and, and that heaven on earth is gone. And so you can say, well, okay, A, stay mindful. And I say, good idea. Exercises to try and help you do that. Very timely uh, and very difficult. So what's the alternative? Here's the alternative. Take the programs that are the negative programs in the subconscious mind and rewrite them so they become the positive programs in the subconscious mind. Point, if you rewrite all the negative ones, and then think about it this way, whether you're mindful and creating from your wishes and desires, or whether you're thinking and then defaulting to the subconscious, which is what? Programs with wishes and desires, then whether you're mindful or not, you're still uh, moving toward heaven on earth all the time. So the issue is, A, learn to be mindful, very difficult. B, uh, rewrite the negative programs that are interfering with your life at this point. Uh, and then that opens up this big can of worms, Julie, about, well, <laughs> how do you do that? And, you know, what's the issue? So if I can continue running off at the mouth here, <laughs> I, yeah. I realize the conversation is I'm talking a lot. <laughs> no, you <laughs> but, know what? Uh, this is right here. This rewriting the programs is a really important conversation, and I know many of our listeners have asked this question. This, this is what they were proposing um, to talk about today. And I'm, actually, I had this experience just last week. I want to give you this example, and maybe you can get into what is rewriting these programs. Because I went to an energy practitioner, and I wanted to I wanted assistance to rewrite a program. And I had an a item that I believed was harmful to my body. And so I wouldn't consume it, sugar. And I wanted to change my relationship with sugar. And so through this energy and and his techniques and myself and my intention, I instantaneously saw a shift. I rewrote that program. So let's let's do dig into that. How do we rewrite these negative programs? Okay, number one, 
The first thing that has to be very clear is that when we say the mind, and we'll subdivide it at this moment into conscious and subconscious, we have to recognize that those are two interdependent elements. They're not the same. They're not connected. And, and this becomes really important because a lot of people say, well, my conscious mind just learned all the right things about how to live my life. I read the self-help book. I saw the lecture. I learned it all. And I know exactly why my life, you know, I should run it this way. And my conscious mind says, good, do it. And then my life is still exactly the same as it was. <laughs> and I go, yeah. Uh, uh, and again, that's because you can educate the conscious mind very quickly because it's creative. Read the self-help book, lecture, you know, videos. Just go, aha. And I go, that, that's how the, the conscious mind learns, very creative. But the subconscious mind doesn't learn that way. Subconscious mind learns in a completely different way. The first seven years, uh, it's operating at theta, which is a state of hypnosis. So it's first seven years of learning all the programs of how to live life are downloaded while my brain is in a state of hypnosis. After age seven, um, uh, at that point, um, the hypnosis phase is over because now my brain is operating in consciousness as a predominant state. And I go, oh, well then how do you learn something new after seven? And I mean like, okay, I learned how to walk before I was seven and the subconscious mind's got that program in it. And, and thank God it's a, a habit mind because I only had to learn it once. Uh, and, but then I learned something after I was seven. Let's say, you know, I learned how to drive a car. I go, well, how did I learn that? Because it's a habit. I say, ah, by repetition. Ah, so here's the point. Before seven, you learn just by hypnosis. All you have to do is observe it, and it's downloaded straight into subconscious. After seven, you want to put in a new program? You have to create a habit, and that means you have to repeat a behavior. And it's very hard for some people because the behavior they want it doesn't really exist in their life, so they're trying out this behavior, and it's like, yeah, but it's not, you know, it's like, that's not my life. I say, keep doing the behavior. Uh, and the behavior is follow through what you want this behavior to be. Consciously make this an exercise. Point. Repetition manifests the habit. <laughs> so it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be after repetition. Okay? So uh, the second way is after you're age seven, the second way of learning is habituation, repetition. Uh, and it doesn't involve sticky notes. Uh, I always like to suggest that they're more or less wishes because there's no behavior associated with it. It's like, oh, yeah, don't eat the donut. I've seen that sign. Uh, but it's not changing anything. So repetition means you actually must engage in something. I mean, you, to drive the car, you, you, you didn't get it in there and just became a driver by getting in the car. You had to practice driving the car. And so you want to do something, you've got to practice it. Then, number three, as you just experienced, there's another way to access uh, uh, a downloading process, which to me is like it's a godsend. It, it was, reason is this, is that uh, we are in a, in a, a world crisis, uh, an environmental crisis, climate change, everything's going on. We're in an evolutionary stage here. And, and the significance is the crises are due to our current behavior, and by definition, the only way to evolve from this point is change the behavior. So this is exactly what we're talking about. Our evolution is dependent on this. And, and I said uh, uh, also or mentioned the fact that a necessity is the mother of invention. So we need to change. We need to change quickly. And as you mentioned, there's a new form of belief modification called energy psychology. I go, well, what's energy psychology? Well, it's unique, and it has a lot to do with super learning. And you say, well, what's super learning? I say, well, I'll give you an example of a person who is, uh, understands super learning. 
can read a, a book by moving their finger down the page. As fast as they move the finger down, that's as fast as they read the page. So they can stand in a bookstore, and as fast as they could flip the pages, they could read the entire book. Uh, and so I super learned. I said, well, you've got to engage something like that. It doesn't happen naturally. And, and I'll give you um, one of the suggested reasons uh, about this, and that is this. Before age seven, both hemispheres of the brain, the right and left, are integrated and work in harmony with each other. And the significance is, before age seven, we are the most amazing learners. <laughs> uh, a child in a family with three different languages will pick up the three different languages and not mix them together and actually create three different vocabularies and grammar and everything, one for each of them, by three years old. Okay? I say, okay, wait. You get an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, you want to teach them one new language. And all of a sudden, this is a much more difficult process than, than you can imagine. I go, well, geez, when they were three, they could have learned three languages. Now they're eight or nine. They, they have trouble learning one. I go, yeah. Because around seven or after is when the brain goes into what is called brain dominance. Before that age, both right and left hemispheres work in synchronization, harmony with each other. After about age seven, it starts to experience brain dominance. During the day, sometimes it's in the right brain and then during the same day, and it wave-like, it goes into the left brain, and then it goes back into the right brain like a, like a wave, like a scheduling of a wave. I say, well, what is the meaning of that? I go, well, there are different functions. So let's consider, for example, the left brain is logic, and the right brain is emotion. So I say, in the early stage, before seven, logic and emotion are tied up with every learning experience. After, say, age seven... The brain is now working in brain dominance, so it's, sometimes it's in logic and sometimes it's more emotional during the day. And when the two hemispheres are not in sync, the learning is impaired. So I say, yeah, and if you do what is called hemisync, the Monroe Institute in Virginia has a lot to do with that, Edgar Casey people. And I say, what's hemisync? I say, well, there's a process where you can get both hemispheres to fire at the same time. And in hemisync, it opens up uh, like a window of super learning. So, if you can get uh, uh, your brain to get into a hemisync, and, and one of the things is even just a posture called the a whole brain posture, is the crossing your arms and legs and sitting, uh, it actually engages right and left. And if you do that, it opens up the window of super learning. And so, if you're engaging in an energy psychology process and you can engage super learning, then that means you can download a new behavior. And this is the great part. Hmm. In minutes. Five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, you can rewrite a behavior as your entire life. And once that behavior is rewritten, it changes everything about your life. And, and, and you know, your story about the sugar, Julie, was really interesting because what's our program about sugar? Well, it's very bad for you. It's, you know, all these negative things. I say, well, what would be the consequence of eating sugar with a knowledge that it's bad for you? And the answer is, oh, well, then you're going to get sick. Why? Function of the brain is to take your belief and turn it into reality. My belief is sugar is bad for me. I'm eating sugar. It's going to have to be bad for me now. And I go, here's an interesting one. Down south in the U.S., we have uh, fundamentalists who work themselves up into a state of religious ecstasy. Uh, and they do things that they call testifying. And testifying means they, they do something that no normal person in their right mind would ever do, but they do it knowing in their total belief that God is going to protect them while they're doing it. And I say, well, you've heard of some of them are snake handlers. They, they play with poisonous snakes and stuff like that. And 
frequently, uh, I mean, infrequently, they, they get hurt, but they, they're bitten frequently, but they have no, uh, no you know, consequences. Although one of them died just about a month or two ago. Uh, and, uh, but that's not the one I want to talk about. I want to talk about some of them testifying. This is the killer. If you think about this, if you really get what I'm talking about, is they testify that God protects them by drinking strychnine poison in toxic doses. And guess what? In the belief that God protects them, they can drink the strychnine and they have absolutely no adverse effect from the poison. It's hmm. like, holy jeez, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. It says, you took your belief and you turned it into reality. This poison is not going to affect me because God is going to protect me, and therefore drinking the poison, drinking poison did not affect them. Walking across hot coals, same story, not as you know dramatic, but it's the same old story. It's like, your mind is creating this reality. So we have the... Uh, Subconscious mind with its programs creating negative realities most of the time, and and we got programmed with those, and it's running ninety five percent of the time, and I say you can change it a as we mentioned, put on headphones at night, play a tape, subliminal tape, and uh, and you can reprogram uh, uh, using auto hypnosis. Two, create a new habit, exercise, do it every day, practice it. Make it happen every day. Just do it. Even if it's not working, just keep doing it. It will happen over time. Three, and this is the most exciting one as you experience, energy psychology, enter into a state of super learning, rewrite a program, and do so in minutes. And, uh, and the relevance about all that is we can change our beliefs, but only really in our subconscious, only through right now, either of, you know, either, not either, or any one of those three modalities. You want to change the subconscious programming, auto-hypnosis, you know, habituation, or using an energy psychology modality. Now, what's really interesting is you say, well, okay, wait, I've been programmed, and I was programmed from the last trimester of pregnancy through the first seven years, and I have an issue with this. I said, well, geez, I was getting a lot of programs when I was zero, or when I was still in utero, when I was one, Two, I have no idea what the heck those programs are. I go, of course not. You don't. Your conscious mind wasn't even working. So uh, you say, well, I've been programmed. So what the heck are my programs? That's when a lot of people spend a lot of money and time and desperation going to you know a psychologist or psychiatrist and rebuild this, the pattern of their lives by reviewing all the interactions and you know crying their hearts out and reliving all that. And I go, wait, wait, not necessary. You want to know what your behaviors are that are programmed? Simple. Reason? 95% of our life, by definition, is coming from subconscious. So by definition, your life is a printout of your subconscious programs. Simple. Meaning, those things that come into your life that you want, and they come there relatively easily, you've got programs to encourage that. In contrast, and this is the one, anything you work hard at, Anything you put a lot of effort into, anything you sweat over, why are you working so hard? The answer almost inevitably is your program doesn't support that. And therefore, all of a sudden it says, oh, great. You want to understand what you want to change in your life? Look at your life. Find the things that don't work and then focus on that as the primary program that you're looking to change. And, And you can then get right to the point and using energy psychology you can change these things in, in minutes. And you might say, oh, that's a lot of new age woo-woo stuff. And I go, well, you know, for a long time, that's the only thing I could go on. 
I know it worked. I've, I've used it in my whole life, and it changed, not my whole life, uh, since 50. <laughs> uh, and it changed my entire life and, and everything about it. And um, why is it relevant? Well, in the beginning, it was, I knew it worked because my life changed. But as a scientist, I, you know, it's like, hey, I can suggest this is a good idea. But today, I, I completely have a different stand on it. And that is because uh, 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 a friend of mine uh, who is a neuroscientist um, got involved with us in regard to looking at these belief changes and found, guess what? You could, and we use this, have used this a few times, and that is uh, we have an audience, we ask who wants to have a belief change, and one of the using one of these energy modalities that, I, that I'm familiar with, and uh, Jeff Fannin, the neuroscientist, will have a person who wants to change a belief come up and decide what kind of belief they want to change, go into what is called the balance process where the belief is occurring, but before that, putting wires on their head to read the electrical readout from the EEG patterns, which are then projected on the screen so the whole audience can see the live EEG. And oh, guess what? Cool. Right in the balance, even the audience can see, oh my God, it was dramatic enough that an untrained audience can see a profound shift in brain function the moment the belief takes. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, it's just not new age anymore. Now I can give you the numbers on those EEG things. It's now it's a scientific reality. You can change these beliefs using these energy psychology modalities. There is a fundamental change in brain function, changes EEG patterns, which EEG patterns are almost tantamount to fingerprints. Uh, your pattern is yours, and if you change it, that's a profound thing. Uh, so basically it says... We can change these behaviors, and I, I guess the conclusion is always why and what and what for and all that, and the answer is simply this. What we realize is, A, we've been programmed, and that most of these programs have created the struggle and hardships that we find in life, that we can rewrite these programs. And if we rewrite these programs, guess what? We don't even have to practice mindfulness, because the moment we're not paying attention and we default to the subconscious, if the subconscious has programs expressing our wishes and desires, then it says even when you're not paying attention, the brain will be still leading you and manifesting your wishes and desires without you even putting in a conscious effort into it. So it's like, oh, that's the resolution, is to, to look at our lives, adjust the programs that have been limiting to us, rewrite them with programs that fulfill our wishes and desires, and let go. And the moment you let go, it's just like reprogramming a computer. This, your whole life will move off in a totally different direction at this point. It's exciting. It is exciting. And, you know, Bruce, you literally, I think I could go check off all those questions of our listeners. I think we've tapped into almost all of them, of course. Um, <laughs> just by you being present, we, we're connecting into that. So, you know, this conversation, I would love to pick this back up again. We didn't talk about evolution. We didn't talk about spirituality. And <gasps> Those are fundamental. So <laughs> oh, gosh. Do we have but, any, how much time, is there any time left here? There's about a minute or so. Do you Oh, have let me tell everybody everything. Remark? No, I can't do that. There's so many wonderful things. We're going to have to come back and do it again. I know. Would you come back and share more with us? I would love to do that because... Uh, as I said, uh, the, your audience uh, uh, are the people that are already thinking uh, there's another way, and, and to, to offer some vision and, and a path is, is really, for me, exciting because uh, 
we're we're moving on an evolutionary trajectory at this moment. Uh, the mass population is going toward extinction, and this is why there's this large number of people, such as the listeners out here, are waking up and saying, "We have to change. That we know this is this is wrong, and and it's this change that is going to be the evolution. It's yes. a change in consciousness." Mm-hmm. So we're going to have you back. I thank you so much for being with us today. We just have a few seconds until the music starts, but I just want to remind our listeners, they can find you at brucelipton.com, and of course you can connect with me on my website, juliecroll.com, anytime. Thanks for listening today. We are creating greater connectivity, and that's always a good thing for the greater good of the whole. Until next time, I'm wishing you conscious love. <music> 